Hey, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you grab one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, uh, Ephesians is on page 917. Uh, And keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We really want you to be able to engage with it, see what we're talking about, uh, because we're just going to walk through this passage because we believe uh, it's God's word to us this morning. Last week, we kicked off our uh, Rooted campaign, a six-month giving campaign focused specifically on uh, the furnishings and things we need to get into our new building at 584 South Riley Road, and uh, that gave us an opportunity to kind of dovetail with this series in Ephesians, uh, some sermons to just help us recenter and refocus this fall on who we are as a church and what we're called to do and be uh, as a church, and so you'll hear more about the Rooted campaign next week, but this week... Uh, We're back in our series walking through the book of Ephesians in in chapter 2 and looking at uh, one of those really famous church words and and church phrases and concepts, the word saved. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, And like many important words that get thrown around a lot, it can often become a buzzword and the meaning of it starts to get lost on us. Let's say you really like fishing, for example, and you try to spend most weekends going out and and putting a chair out on the dock and fishing off of the dock. And it's a long dock that takes you uh, pretty far off the shore so that you can do some fishing. Well, what would you think if one day while you were doing that, a man ran by at full speed, and as he ran by you, he screamed, I'm saving you, uh, and then jumped into the water and drowned? Now, you've you'd probably be freaked out or weirded out, and you'd, I imagine you'd think that guy's a little bit crazy, and you'd probably be thinking, like, save me? What do I need to be saved from? from? I was just fishing on the dock. You know, even if he really was saving you, if you didn't know why you needed to be saved and what he was doing to save you, his salvation of you really would not affect you at all. You'd probably go home and tell your spouse, the weirdest thing happened to me today while I was fishing, Uh, And that would probably be the end of it. But what if instead, uh, this man runs up to you on the dock, but instead of jumping off, he tells you, hey, you can't see it from where you're sitting, but there's a beam on the dock that's breaking and it's about to fall off, and the entire dock is going to collapse, and and you're going to fall into the water and drown if you don't get off of this dock. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to jump in the water and hold up the beam long enough for you to get off the dock. And he does this, and you're able to get off the dock in time, and he actually drowns holding up this beam so that he can save you. He gives up his life for yours. What would your response be to the man that time around? It would be a lot different, would it not? Why? Well, because this time you knew why you needed to be saved, what you needed to be saved from, and what he was doing to save you. And so it would fill you with a depth of gratitude towards this man for saving you that you just wouldn't have had before when he just ran by you and jumped off of the dock. And this is what God wants to give us here in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, God is going to tell us why we needed to be saved and what he's done to save us and, and what it means to be saved. Because as long as we don't know why we need to be saved and what Jesus has done to save us, salvation will be meaningless. But if we know why and what God has done, salvation will be meaningful. The, the depths and riches and glories of salvation will be opened up to us and we will treasure Jesus for the what he has done 
to save us. And that's what God wants to do in our hearts through this passage together. And so uh, let's look at it together this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, God's word speaks to us like this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, thank you for this word of good news. Would you, through your spirit, open up our eyes and open up our hearts to see and believe the good news of the gospel here. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that agree with this evaluation of our judgment and our condition, that apart from you, we were dead in our sins. God, would you make salvation all the sweeter, knowing what you've done to save us and what you've saved us from? Spirit, would you illuminate, would you give light to the words that you have inspired here? Would you do this work even this morning for people in this room who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, still children of wrath, would you make them alive. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes? Would you revive their hearts? Would you replace their heart of stone with a living heart that loves you and wants to follow you? Jesus, you're more than powerful and more than capable of doing it. Would you be pleased to do it among us even this morning? I pray that you would. In your name, amen. Well, three questions we'll answer to, to help us walk through this text. One, why do we need to be saved? Two, how are we saved? Three, what are we saved for? Why do we need to be saved? How are we saved? And what are we saved for? So first, why do we need to be saved? And Paul really doesn't waste any time giving us the reason. He doesn't foam the runway or anything like that. He just hits us with the reason right out of the gate. We needed to be saved because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room, does it? Because Paul did not say we were sick in our sins or diseased in our sins or uh, held back in our sins or injured in our sins. He says we were dead in our sins. Now, obviously, he can't mean that we were physically dead. He means we were spiritually dead. But just apply the realities of what it means to be physically dead to the realm of the spiritual, and you'll start to be able to get at what Paul, understand what Paul is getting at here. What does it mean to be dead? Well, one of the things it means is that you're totally helpless and totally unable to do anything on your own. 
right? You could yell at a corpse as loud as you want to to get up. You could uh, give it your best motivational speech. You could put makeup on it and move it into a better environment. You could grab it and shake it and yell at it to wake up and come back to life, but it's not going to do it. Why? Because it's dead. Dead means that we were totally opposed to God. We were totally separated from God and totally unable to do anything about it. And Paul, in the text, he gives us three ways that this spiritual death played out in our lives, what it looks like and what it means to be spiritually dead. The first thing he says in verse 2 that it means to be spiritually dead is that we follow the course of this world. Now, when Paul uses the word world here, uh, he's not talking about the land and the sky and the sea. He's talking about the people and the systems and the cultures of this world. The, the world is in rebellion against God. It's hostile to God's ways. And we walked in that. We got in line and we marched to that beat. And, and Romans 1 gives us a good picture of this. Romans 1 tells us that everyone in the world knows that there is a God, that God exists, but we all suppress that knowledge. We try to hide ourselves from that knowledge, and instead of worshiping God, our creator, we instead turn to created things and begin to worship created things. And so we look to something in creation and say, that's what's worth living for. That's what I'm going to build my life around. That's what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to give me meaning and purpose and satisfaction in this life. And apart from Jesus, the reality is that all of us are enslaved to that pursuit. All of us are going to worship some idol, some false god, some created thing. You can change the idol that you're worshiping, but you cannot change the fact that apart from Jesus, you will worship a false god. We were enslaved. We followed the course of this world. The second thing that Paul tells us is that we also followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan. We were enslaved to and we followed Satan, the devil. What does it mean to follow the devil? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is giving the qualifications for pastors, for elders in the church, and one of the qualifications he gives, he says an elder should not be a recent convert, otherwise he's going to be tempted to be puffed up with conceit and fall into the same condemnation of the devil. The same thing the devil was condemned for. So what was the devil condemned for? Pride conceit. To, to, be, to be enslaved to the, to the devil means that we worshiped and we served our own pride and our selfishness. And listen, I, I think if we were honest with ourselves this morning, we know that that's true. Martin Luther said the human heart is in curvitas in se. It's curved in. It's turned in on itself so that like a boomerang, you always keep pointing everything back to you. Your default bent, my default bent, is to go into every conversation, every relationship, every situation, every interaction thinking, how can this benefit me? How can this serve me? What can I get out of this? We, I mean, as you go about through your day, who are you thinking about all day? Who are you focused on making sure is comfortable? Who are you focused on and obsessed with making sure they look good and feel good? You, yourself, the person you're obsessed with is you. And if you don't believe me, you don't think you do this, you're just fooling yourself, 
And you're probably one of the people that other people talk about behind their back about how you do turn everything on back to yourself and you can't even see it. Because apart from Jesus, all of us are hopelessly selfish. We're hopelessly turned in on ourselves because we've enslaved ourselves to the devil and followed in his pride. The third thing that Paul says here is that we were enslaved to the passions of our flesh, that we all lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh here, he's not talking about our skin. He's not talking about our bodies. He's talking about our sinful desires uh, and our sinful lust. And you can see this in the text because the way he describes this and explains this, what this means is that we were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Apart from Jesus, you and I were enslaved to our sinful desires. We wanted to do something sinful, and so we did everything in our power so that we could fulfill that desire and get that thing. We did everything in our power to try uh, to conserve, uh, to, to serve our sinful lust and passions. And look, when Paul uses this here, don't make the mistake of thinking that when he talks about passions, he's just talking about lust and sinful sexual desire. He is talking about that, but the passions of the flesh are also desires to lash out in anger against someone, desires to be greedy, to covet uh, somebody else's things, to be prideful towards the, to be prideful and express that pride towards someone else. Any sinful desire is a passion of the flesh. And what Paul is saying here is that you do what you want to do, and what you want to do is to sin. Because he then says, we were by nature children of wrath. By nature means that sin was not just a behavior that we engaged in sometimes. Sinner described our nature, who we were. We were not basically good people who sometimes acted out of character and did sinful things. No, before Jesus saved us, sin was our character. Sin was what we did. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Just like you don't have the flu because you're sneezing and coughing and have body aches, you're sneezing and coughing and have body aches because you have the flu. The sinful desires and actions we give ourselves over to are symptoms of the deeper sickness, of the reality that we are sinners by nature. We are born with natures that are inclined towards sin, that want to sin, and we act out on that and enslave ourselves to it as quickly as we can. And listen, if there's any doctrine, any truth in the Scripture that we just have such a wealth of experience of to tell us that this is true, it's this one. I mean, you can see this even in young children. Kids, think about when uh, you don't get to do something you want, or you don't get something that you want, and then you do things and you say things that you know are wrong because you're trying to get what you want, or you're mad that you didn't get what you want. Now, have you, have you ever seen your mom yell at your dad, it's my turn, when he gets to watch the show that he wants to watch on TV? Has your dad ever thrown himself on the floor and cried and thrown a tantrum when he didn't get to do what he wanted to? No, you've never seen your parents do that. They didn't teach you how to do that, but you do those things, don't you? 
When, when you get upset about not getting something that you want, you do those things, and that's sin in your heart coming out. It's showing us that we're all sinners by nature, that we're born with sinful natures that want to sin. Now, listen, I, I know that's not fun for any of us to hear, but if you will believe this about yourself, it will go such a long way to helping you understand why you do the things that you do and why people are so awful to each other. Yeah, it's not pretty, but it is realistic. It makes sense of our world. And Paul is not saying here in Ephesians 2 that we're all as bad as we could be. We're not. You know, we're not all Hitler. We, we still bear the image of God as well. What Paul is saying instead is that we are totally shot through with sin, that there's not any part of us that is left unaffected by our sin. You know, one drop of poison is more than enough to contaminate an entire glass of drinking water, and we've got more than a drop of sin in us. Everything, our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our motivations, our behaviors and actions are all tainted by sin. They're all affected by our sin, which also helps explain that Paul is not just talking about bad people here. He's not just talking about serial killers and Hitler who were dead in their sins. He's talking about sweet old grandmas and well-mannered kids. He's talking about all of us. Notice again in the text, he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You are a part of that all. And that means we were what the text says about us, that we were children of wrath. Children of wrath means that we were headed for God's judgment. We sat under God's judgment. We were on a collision course for hell. We had all rebelled and sinned against God and enslaved ourselves to our sin and rightly deserved the judgment of God, rightly deserved to suffer an eternity in hell for that. And this passage actually gives us a pretty good description of what hell is like. Because a lot of times we get the wrong idea about hell, that hell is, is just this kind of big fire pit where people who reject Jesus go to roast forever. And that's really not what hell is like at all. Yes, the Bible uses the metaphors of fire and brimstone to describe hell, but that's what they are. They're metaphors. It's not literally fire and brimstone. Hell is not a place where people are literally burning up in the flames to death. But here's what I don't want you to miss. We use metaphors to convey a truth in a greater way than we could just using straightforward language. So honestly, it should be more terrifying to us that, that hell is described using the metaphor of fire and brimstone than if it was a literal place of fire and brimstone where people burned up. And so what is the metaphor of fire and brimstone saying? Well, think about what fire physically does to you. What does it do to you? It suffocates you. It disintegrates you. It destroys you. Uh, the smoke chokes you out so that you can't breathe. It's like a prison that keeps drawing the chains and the bars tighter and tighter so that you cannot escape and get out of it. And that's what hell is going to be like. C.S. Lewis wrote a novel called The Great Divorce. And in the novel, the narrator of the novel take, is taken on a tour of heaven and hell. And his, 
depiction of hell in the novels, a pretty good description of how the Bible characterizes hell. His picture of hell in the novel is hell is a place that's always dark, it's always gray, it's always dreary, and everybody lives completely secluded from everybody else, and every person he talks to in hell is just a miserable shell of a person who's incredibly arrogant, incredibly bitter, uh, incredibly angry, uh, incredibly selfish and turned in on themselves. They hate everybody else, and, and they always have somebody else to blame for their troubles, for why they're in the situation that they're in. Romans 1 says that the way God reveals his wrath from heaven, the way he reveals his judgment against sin is by just giving us over to it, by taking all the emergency breaks and restraints off and letting us pursue our sin with full force. And that's what hell is, gone on into eternity. Just Jesus letting you pursue your sin uh, into eternity. Um, because here's the truth. Selfishness and pride and sin are a prison. Every time you give in to sin, every time you give in to selfishness, every time you give in to pride, you're making it a little bit easier to do it next time. You're allowing a little bit more of the fires of hell into your life because it just becomes easier to justify it in your own internal monologue as to how you're really in the right and, and you're really the victim and everybody else is out to get you. But like a drug, you continue to need a bigger hit uh, to get high off of it. And so you've got to become even more miserable and even more prideful and even more selfish to try to get that same high, and, and it never works. Hell is you saying, I want to be my own God. I want to run my own life. I want to call my own shots. And God's saying, okay, you do that, and just taking all the restraints off and letting you pursue that for an eternity. Hell will be a never-ending place of you becoming more dehumanized, more disintegrated, more prideful, more selfish, more hateful, more turned in on yourself, more, you'll just spiral further and further into your own destruction, but you'll never be able to finally destroy yourself. That's what hell is like. And this is what Jesus, this is why we needed salvation. All of us were headed for this, and that's why we needed to be saved. Because listen, as long as you think that you are a basically good person who sometimes does good things and you're not sitting under judgment, salvation will be meaningless to you. You'll always be wondering why everybody's making such a fuss, why they keep trying to rush you back for emergency surgery when you feel like, Oh, if I just pop a few Tylenols, I'll be okay. But the first part of coming to Jesus is repenting. It's agreeing with God's judgment of your condition. To repent means first and foremost to change your mind. And the first way you do that is by agreeing with God that left to yourself, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were a child of wrath. You were headed for an eternity in hell. You were not uh, out in the ocean, trying to keep your head above the waters, waiting for someone to throw you a raft that you could grab onto and be pulled into shore. No, you had sank to the bottom of the ocean. You were decaying and decomposing. 
and you were dead. You were not a basically good person. You were a sinner who had rebelled against God and rightly earned his just judgment. You were headed for an eternity in hell because of your sin. That's the truth. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Paul hammers our condition apart from Jesus, but then he turns in verse 4 and gives us maybe the two best words in the entire Bible, but God. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. You and I were enslaved to the world, to our passions, and to the devil, but God. You and I were by nature children of wrath who weren't going to be able to fix our situation and were headed for hell, but God. God intervened and completely turned your story around. And how did God do this? Well, look at what it says. It says God made us alive together with Jesus. God made us alive. He did not just put makeup on a corpse. He did not just give his best motivational speech. He did not just give us new inspiration and motivation. He literally raised us from the dead with the same power that he raised Jesus with. God addressed our deepest need. You were dead in your sins. You were completely separated from God. You weren't going to be able to respond to him So God paid for your sins and made you alive with Jesus so that you could come back to him. Ephesians is giving us the doctrine of regeneration. That means new birth and new life. Jesus, God literally takes out your heart of stone and gives you a living heart that loves him and desires him and wants to follow him and wants to submit to his ways. God literally makes you alive and begins to recreate you from the inside out. This is the good news of Christianity. In the gospel, you do not just get new guidelines, new rules, new motivation, new inspiration, new advice. No, you get an entirely new life. God literally recreates you and begins to work out this new life in you. He makes you alive. And then And how does the text say that God does this? God makes us alive together with Jesus, it says. This happens through Jesus. Jesus accomplishes our salvation by both substituting himself for us and representing us. John Stott says that uh, substitution is at the heart, it's at the essence of both sin and salvation. He says the essence of sin is that we substitute ourselves for God. We put ourselves in the place where only God deserves to be, and that we put ourselves on the throne and we try to be our own gods. And he says, but the essence of salvation is that Jesus puts himself where only we deserve to be. Jesus takes our seat on the cross so that we could be seated with him in heaven. He takes our seat and absorbs and pays for the judgment that our sin deserved so that we can be made alive and can be brought back to God. And so Jesus substitutes himself for us, but he doesn't just do that, he also represents us. Uh, Notice in the verse it says that God has made us alive with Jesus, he's raised us with him, and he's seated us with him in heaven. And All of those verbs are past tense. Those things have already happened. 
And so Ephesians is saying, in some mysterious but very real way, Jesus took your place, but he also united you to himself so that when he died, you died with him. And when he was buried, you were buried with him. And when he rose from the grave, you left your old self in the ground and you rose with him. And when he ascended to heaven, you ascended to heaven with him and you are seated in heaven with him right now at this moment. Now, obviously, you're not bodily and physically in heaven with Jesus at this moment. You're here at FCA bodily and physically. So what does this mean? I've heard it put helpfully like this. Imagine you're a starting player on a volleyball team who's playing in the championship match. And so the game starts, and you're not doing well. You're basically missing every point for your team. You're either missing the ball when it comes to you, or you're shanking it out of bounds. And uh, it's the first team to win three games out of five. That's who's going to win the championship. And you're doing so bad uh, that your team has lost two straight games because of you. And so finally, the coach has enough. They take you out of the game. They put a new player into your place. And this new player, uh, they do so well, they end up scoring every single point for your team. And they lead the team all the way back to victory, three straight games, so that your team wins the championship. Now, if that were to happen, what's true of that teammate? Well, one is that they substituted for you. They took your place, but they didn't just do that. They also represented you. Because their victory, it's credited to you as if it were your victory. You get to share in the benefits of what they accomplished. You get to wear the championship ring because of what they did to win the game. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has represented us so that while we're not uh, physically and bodily in heaven yet, we are there legally and spiritually And truly, Jesus has so represented us that we are in heaven right now and we get to share the benefits of his victory. We get to share in the benefits of what he accomplished. We get to wear the championship ring even though all we ever did was put the team in a hole because Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning. Jesus has made you alive and he so represents you in heaven that the only way you could get kicked out of heaven now is if he gets kicked out of heaven. And I just don't see that happening. So why did God do this? Why did God show us such incredible grace to make us alive together with Jesus and raise us and seat us in heaven with him? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7, he says, God did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God did this so that for all of eternity, he could just show off to us how good and gracious and kind he's been to us in Jesus. God did this so that for all of eternity, he could show you how much he loves you, the great love with which he loved you and saved you. God did this so that for all eternity, eternity. We would be in awe of his grace, that he didn't give us what we deserve, that he didn't leave us as children of wrath. Instead, he reconciled us back to himself through the death of his son. It's going to take a whole eternity because Ephesians 3 tells us that the riches of Jesus are unsearchable. We'll never get to the bottom of them. 
And so why did we need to be saved? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. How are we saved? What has God done to save us? He's made us alive with the same power he used to raise Jesus from the dead. And so let's answer the third question, what are we saved for? Look at verses 8 and 9 again with me. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we get one of the clearest statements of salvation here in the Bible. How are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's God giving us what we do not deserve. And so in the gospel, we get grace, what we do not deserve, and mercy, we don't get the judgment we do deserve, and God saves us. He delivers us from the danger of his judgment, and he reconciles us back to himself and gives us eternal life with Jesus. And this grace, this salvation, Paul says it's received by faith, through faith. Faith is the empty hands with which we receive the salvation that God accomplishes for us. And and faith, it's not just believing in God. It's not just believing that God exists. Faith is believing in what God has done to save you in Jesus. It's entrusting yourself to Jesus. You know, I could say, I believe this chair exists. I could go even further and say, I believe that if I were to sit down in that chair it would do what it says it will do, and it will hold me up. But when I cross the line into what the Bible is describing when it uses the word faith is only when I sit down in the chair believing it will hold me up. That's what faith is. It's entrusting yourself to Jesus. It's sitting in the chair. It's putting yourself in Jesus' hands saying, if he doesn't save me, I'm not going to be saved. He's my only hope. And there's something else about faith that the passage says that's really important for us not to miss. Uh, Look down at your Bibles. I I need you to track this with me. I want you to see this. So he says in verse 8 that that by grace we've been saved through faith. And then he says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. And so the question we've got to answer when he says, and this is not your own doing, What's the this in the previous sentence that he's talking about? What's the this that's not our own doing, that's the gift of God, not a result of our works? Is it God's grace? Is it salvation? Or is it our faith? Well, you can check me later on this. We can talk about this after if you want. But grammatically, in Greek, the way Paul has written this sentence, he wrote it so that the this would be referring to all of the previous sentence. So God's grace, our salvation, and our faith are all not our own doing. They're all a gift of God. They're all not the result of works. Now, why is that important? Well, John Stott says salvation is not a transaction where God brings grace to the table and we bring faith to the table and then we negotiate and bargain for salvation. No, it's all God's work. It's all God's gift. Faith is not a work. It's a gift that God gives you. God saves you. God opens your eyes. Look, dead people don't believe in anything. They're dead. 
God had to make you alive first. And when God made you alive, he gave you the grace that would open up your eyes to believe in Jesus, to come to Jesus. And look, look at me. This means that Jesus did not just purchase savability on the cross. He did not just purchase the possibility of you being saved if you were smart enough to figure it out and you were good enough to put your faith in him. No, he took names to the cross. He took your name. He actually paid and purchased you, paid for and purchased your salvation, paid for your unbelief so that the day would come when the Holy Spirit would open up your eyes and draw you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're in the kingdom, if you trust in Jesus, you're not here by accident. You didn't sneak in the back door. You are here on purpose. That's a gift that God has given you. So why did God do it this way? What's the purpose of God in doing it in this way? Well, he tells us in verse 9, he says he did all of it in this way so that no one would boast. Boasting's about what you put your confidence in, what you put your trust in, what you fall back on uh, as, as your fallback plan. And so uh, in middle and high school, uh, one of my friends on our baseball team was the best athlete I've ever played with or played against. Uh, he was a pitcher, and in eighth grade, he was throwing the ball close to 90 miles an hour, uh, which if you don't know baseball, I'll just undersell it a little bit and tell you, uh, that's really good. You'll, you'll see a lot of that if you go and watch the Woodpeckers play, and he was doing that when he was 14. Uh, and so he was just so much better than everyone else that, that we just knew if, if he is pitching, it's a done deal. We are going to win this game. We have it in the bag before we even stepped onto the field because no one was going to get a hit off of him. You know, I'm, I'm sure it happened, but I don't remember anyone on, a, on another team getting a hit off of him the entire eighth grade season. He was just so much better than everybody else. And so we obviously had a ton of confidence knowing if he's pitching, we are going to win this game because he is on our team. That's what it means to boast in something, is to have confidence like that in something. And, and Paul is saying that God has orchestrated our salvation in this way so that you would not boast in anything else like that. You would not look to anything else in your life and point at it and say, that's how I know I'm getting in. That's how I know I'm good with God because I've got that. Ephesians 2 is saying you don't even get to boast in your faith like that because it's not your own doing. You didn't work it up on your own. It's God's gift that God opened your eyes to. So don't boast in your faith. Don't boast in your works. Don't boast in your devotion. Boast in Jesus. You can know that in Jesus, salvation is a done deal. It's in the bag already because you are on his team. And so what has God saved us for? Well, one, he saved us so that we would boast not in anything else, but we would boast in him. And then he gives us the second purpose that he saved us for in verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what has God saved us for? He saved us to be his workmanship. The word for workmanship in here in Greek is, uh, is poema. It's where we get our word poem from. Paul's saying we are God's art. We're God's handiwork. We're God's craft. We're his creation. 
Why? For what purpose? Well, he says he's created us in Christ Jesus, and that's talking about our recreation, how God's made us alive. He's brought us from death to life in our sins, and he's given us this new life in Jesus. So he's recreated us in Jesus for what? For good works, that we might walk in the good works he's laid out beforehand for us to walk in. Passages like this are why the Reformers always said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always leads on. It always flows out to love and to good works because we love Jesus. We trust Jesus. God's given us a new heart that wants to love him and follow him. We've made Jesus our king, and so we're trying to submit to what he says. We're trying to follow his good rule over our lives and walk in what he calls us to do. And so what are these good works that God's prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them? Well, if you zoom out in the context of the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul really lays out two major categories of, of where these good works are directed and what they look like. And so the first category of good works in Ephesians, it's directed towards our brothers and sisters here in the church. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, he's going to tell us that all of us have an indispensable, a necessary role to play in building up the body into spiritual maturity, that we will not be all that God has saved us to be without every member, every part contributing their part and serving one another uh, to be built up into spiritual maturity. He also tells us in Ephesians 4 that the way we live out this new life that he's worked in us is by doing things like speaking the truth to one another instead of lying to each other, by working hard with our own hands so that we have things to share instead of stealing from one another, by forgiving one another like God has forgiven us instead of being resentful towards each other and holding bitterness and grudges towards each other, by uh, loving one another as God has loved us. One category of good works is directed towards our brothers and sisters here in the church. And so I'll just call you into this and take one of these things and step into this this week. Who here do you need to forgive this week that you've been withholding forgiveness from? Who here do you need to ask forgiveness from this week because of the ways you've sinned against them? Who here can you grab before you leave this morning and get specific prayer requests from them and pray for them this week? Who here can you have over to dinner this week? Who can you bring dinner this week? Who here can you encourage this morning with something you read in the scriptures this week or a way that you've prayed for them or something you're learning that God is teaching you? Who can you get together with and read the Bible with this week? The second category of good works is directed towards outsiders, towards unbelievers who do not yet follow Jesus. Just go back to the reality of what verse 3 said. Everyone, everyone who does not trust in Jesus is right now dead in their sins and a child of wrath who is headed for an eternity in hell. Hell is real. People will go there. So it's urgent that we share the gospel with them. And if you feel like, I don't know where to start, I don't know what I would say if I tried to share the gospel with someone, use the words of this passage. Talk about how God made us good, but we rebelled against him. We sinned against him. We tried to be our own gods. And so now 
We're dead in our sins, and we're children of wrath. We rightly deserve God's judgment, and we sit under God's judgment. But God is powerful enough, God loves us, he's merciful towards us, and he can make us alive so that anyone who would put their trust in Jesus and would entrust themselves to Jesus could know that God has already been doing the work to make them alive and open up their eyes to believe in Jesus. The gospel's for anyone who will believe, who will trust in Jesus, and everyone needs it. And so we're called to share it. And listen, I don't want to miss the opportunity to do so here. And so, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus in this room, hear me. You've heard why you need to be saved. You've heard what God has done to save you and how you receive it through faith, through trust in what Jesus has done. Right now, because you do not trust in Jesus, you are currently dead in your sins and you were headed for an eternity in hell suffering the wrath and judgment of God for the ways you've rebelled against him. If you do not trust in Jesus, that's how you will spend an eternity. But you don't have to. God can make you alive. God can work his grace in your life. He can make you completely new. He can pay for your sins in Jesus and bring you back to himself. So will you please repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus. Come to Jesus and put your trust in him. If you will, he will save you. And the final question I think we've got to answer from this passage, where does the power to to do these good works come from? I've heard it explained helpfully like this. Imagine there's uh, two different ways that you could die. And so let's say the first way you're going about your day, enjoying your life, and you get bit by a poisonous spider, and so the spider bites you and injects you with poison, and before you can get an antidote, before you can get healing, uh, you die from being poisoned by this spider bite. And so that's the first way. Let's say the second way is while you're going about your day, just enjoying your life, uh, the zoo has a mishap, and the lion at the zoo breaks out of its cage, and then it breaks out of the zoo, and then it hunts you down, and it mauls you. Uh, It attacks you and mauls you to death, and so you die from being mauled by a lion. Okay, so if that were to happen to two different people, which of those two people would be more dead? You know, one's going to be ugly dead, and one's going to be pretty dead. One's going to look a whole lot better, right? But at the end of the day, they're still the same amount of dead, are they not? Well, the same is true of us spiritually. It does not matter if you have spent every Sunday in church from the time you were in the womb. It does not matter if you've read the Bible cover to cover a hundred times. It does not matter if you've never gotten drunk or you've never gotten high. It doesn't matter if you were a virgin when you got married. It doesn't matter if you know all the right answers. You were just as dead in your sin as the person who does all those more visible sins. Look at me, every salvation is a miracle because God had to bring the dead back to life. You, you, not just everybody else, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God in his grace made you alive. He gave you the grace of saving you and opening your eyes to believe and receive the salvation he purchased for you. 
God did that in your life. And if you'll get that, if you'll grasp that, you will walk in gratitude. You will walk in the good works that God has prepared for you because you were dead and God made you alive. Why would you not want to live for the God that has done that for you? Let me pray that we would. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, Even uh, a difficult word and truth that apart from you, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. God, would you help us to believe, to agree with you that this was what was true of us? God, would you help us, those of us who you have made alive and brought to faith in you, to rejoice in the fact that that isn't our story any longer. You've made us alive. You've raised us. You've seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. God, thank you for the great love and grace with which you've loved us and graced us. Thank you that you are rich in mercy. Even when we were still dead in our trespasses, you made us alive with Jesus. God, would you give us the grace to rejoice in that, to walk in gratitude and the good works that you've prepared for us. Thank you that you have prepared good works for us, that you're working out this new life in us and we get to walk in it. Thank you for that grace. Help us to do that with each other. Help us to do that with unbelievers among us. God, I pray for those in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus. Would you do the work of opening their eyes and opening their heart to believe in you? in this moment. God, please do so. Would you bring them to faith? Would you bring them to salvation? I pray that you would. In your name.